Now, I'm here this morning, actually, to not only preach, but promo a little bit about small groups, since I am no longer uh, executive pastor here. I'm, I'm lay pastor of small groups, and I'm so thankful on a warm weekend, I got to wear a t-shirt <laughs> instead of a suit, um, so the timing was excellent. But I just want us to know that beginning next week, we're going to be starting small groups. And it's really our effort to make sure that a big church where you can be anonymous is not the reality for you on a daily basis, as there's a group that you can be associated with to make a big church small, where really the love and the care of our Lord Jesus Christ can be shared with one another. We think this is important for you. We want everyone to participate if they would. But we do think that there are many classes, there's 28 or so classes in small groups this year that will be hosted at various times throughout the week, morning, evening. I think there's one that will fit your schedule. Now I know some of you are saying, but hey man, school's starting back up, work's ramping up, everything's speeding up, my schedule's crammed. I don't know if I've got a spot for small groups. Well, I'm reminded of a quote attributed to Martin Luther several hundred years ago that said, I have so much to do today that I must spend the first three hours in prayer. What he seemed to realize is that anything that we get done in any day is because he lets us. He empowers us. He strengthens us. He manages your schedule whether you think you have a heavenly secretary or not. There is a sovereign Lord that dictates your schedule. He tells you when the things are going to break. He knows when your refrigerator is going to go out. He knows when it's a hot day and you have no air conditioning. He knows that too. So we think that being part of a small group will fit in your schedule and he will multiply the time for you to be there because it's important. It's part of what he has designed to be one another. Now, um, I pray that today the message that I'm sharing will not only challenge us today, but also maybe whet your appetite a little bit for those that have not yet signed up to sign up for the study that we'll be doing. We're going to be covering 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude in our small group study, and maybe what you hear today will be a taste enough that says, you know, I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta check that out. I need to study. I hope to see you in one of our small groups. Well, it's always a privilege for me to be here. It's an honor to stand in this pulpit because I believe Valley Bible Church has a pulpit that's always stood for the preaching of God's word. It's not for the preaching of men's opinions, but the preaching of God's word. And today, the Bible books we're going to be talking about, and I'm going to intro basically 1 John today, and it's a small book tucked, I guess that would be one, two, three, four, four before Revelation. <laughs> but that's only like four pages, too. Um, these letters were written to churches by John, recorded in Scripture, and... Um, I'm going to focus what I'm speaking today on what he covered in his first chapter and second chapter. Now, John was an interesting person. 
John was the only disciple actually recorded to have survived martyrdom. Although he was, by church history, attempted to be martyred a couple times, but they just weren't successful. But he lived to a ripe old age and became really the senior apostle of the church. Now, he started his life being named by Jesus as one of the sons of thunder. Now, I don't think you get that name by being really nice and milk toast. I think you were an intense person, a zealot. You were, in fact, he was kind of the guy when people didn't treat him right, Lord, shall we call, call down fire and burn these people? I mean, let's take care of this. Okay, this is the John that started the journey with Jesus. By the time the journey was over, this John was the person that another disciple declared, this was the disciple that Jesus loved. This became the apostle of love. Um, and he's now writing to a church as their pastor or shepherd. And it's clear in this passage that he loves them dearly. Now, sometimes I think in churches, it's not always clear if their pastors are out to, I don't know, reform the flock, change the flock, maybe even spank the flock. But John wants to love the flock and protect his flock. And so what he writes, he writes kind of like what every loving pastor should write, and he calls this church, my dear children and beloved, 15 times in one letter. Now, I don't know if you've written your children a letter or your parents, but do you call them my dear children, my beloved, my dear children, my beloved, my, 15 times in the same letter. That seems a little excessive, doesn't it? But that's how John addresses his church. Now, but this, this apostle of love is also not afraid to still pull out of his repertoire his, his history. He's not a marshmallow still. In fact, he calls people in his church that are attempting to take down other believers and, and uh, jeopardizing the health of the flock he calls them right out as liars, deceivers, antichrist. Now, I'm not sure if the pastor came to one of you and said, antichrist, um, you know, if you'd appreciate that. But John felt no reservation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to call it the way God calls it. So what we want to do today is try to see what John wanted to do to bring his flock up in faith holiness, and what just happened, okay? Faith, love, and holiness, and we need that today. Now, John, thankfully, in his letter, gives us his motivations for even writing it. Many times in Scripture, we don't know that. Many times, we'd have to wonder what was going on, and we have to do research and find out, why did this guy even write this letter? John was more kind. He starts off in 1 John 2.26 and tells us, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So you find out right off the bat that there was an underlying problem in his church that there was already, this is like 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, John is an old man, but heresy has already crept into his church and it's killing him. And he's writing this letter to them to make sure that they are not taken down by this false teaching. 
He's trying to protect them. Now, he also gives us three more reasons, which what's interesting, those are more personal reasons, more personal goals that he has in his writing. And we, we just store those in the back of our minds as we go because he's trying to also get them to be who he wants them and knows that God wants them to be. So the first thing he shares is in verse 1 John 1, 4, and it says, we write this to make our joy complete. Now, one would say, well, who's the we? I always like that. We don't like this. Who's the we? You're the only one talking. Who's we? Okay, well, in this case, the we is he's one of the elder apostles, and we as a shepherd's heart saying, I get great joy when your life is right where it should be. When you are serving Christ, you're living in holiness and truth. In fact, he says later in this letter, I have no greater joy than this, than to know that my children are walking with God. Does it not give you joy to find out that your kids actually want to do the right thing? They actually want to follow God and serve him? I mean, that's more, you, as you said with health, John, there's, there, you can't buy a child wanting to serve God. You can't buy it. But it brings joy to these apostles. The second one is in 1 John 2, 1. And he says, my dear children, I write this to you. Why? So that you will not sin. See, John knew that a right relationship with God would produce power in living and a desire for holy living. And so he desired his flock to have this right relationship and therefore demonstrate victory over sin. He wanted them to understand this, and I'll talk about it later, of how devastating sin is to our relationship with God. And three, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know. I love that word. He doesn't say you may guess, you may hope, you may wish for. That you may know that you have eternal life. See, John wanted his, the believers under his care to know that it was possible to be sure that you're sure. You can know. And so we need to find out what did John want to tell them that would communicate these things to them, that would give joy in their right living, that would produce holiness, and that would give them assurance of their salvation. Because don't you think that's one of the things that's been stolen out of the church, as I hear far too many Christians say things like, well, I hope I make it. I hope I make it. Well, do you not know what the Bible says? Do you not know his promises? When it says that you're truly his, and it says you're in my hand, and my hand's in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch you out of my hand. I mean, do we understand what God's trying to tell us that it's possible to know that we're in his hand. See, that's the secret. If you say magic words, that doesn't assure that you're going to be in his hand. What is it that John's going to tell us that communicates to us that we have assurance that we're in his hand? So can a person ever really know that they're eternally sure and secure? John says, absolutely. Absolutely. And let me share it with you. So now... We're going to be looking at two things this morning. 
One is kind of preparatory, and one is really the test. The preparatory thing is John shares in chapter 1 and opens up. He wanted to first know how to be looking at sin rightly. See, he thought it's important for us to understand sin because if you don't understand sin, let me just say it this way, a person who's not drowning doesn't need a life preserver. A person who doesn't have a disease doesn't need the inoculation. A person that doesn't have a sin problem doesn't need salvation. You following me? He wants to make sure it's clear, do you know where you stand relative to God with this thing called sin? So let's read the verses. They start in uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now let's start here, because John, as he takes on this little subject of sin, starts on a weird tangent, you might think. He starts off that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Where are you going with this, John? Why? What does that mean? God is a light bulb? God is really bright? Um... God is light, and there is no darkness at all. See, foundationally, John was trying to lay the groundwork is, do you know who this God of yours really is and what he's about? Do you really know? He is light. Now, in Scripture, light is often represented in several ways. As regards to uh, intellectual looking at it, light is referred to as truth. And darkness is either ignorance or error. So if we apply that right off the bat, do you know that your God is the only source of absolute, pure truth? If you want to know the source of pure truth, this God is it. There's no other truth but his. There is no other. Now, the next thing is, is morally. Well, light represents holiness and purity, and darkness represents evil and sinfulness. And so what he's saying here is God is light. That means he is pure holiness. There is nothing as holy as our God, nothing as pure as our God. We don't even know how to measure it. We are kind of the pygmies of the world trying to figure out what holiness looks like when we measure ourselves by ourselves and we say we're better than him. When we, my dad used to have this image that he wanted to create in me and about where God was and where we were. He says, let's say this whole front wall here. You go to the far side and you take a razor blade and you make a line in the wall. And he says, okay, 
And now you come over here and you make a mark on the far wall. That's not really fair. And you say, mankind, the best of man and the worst of man, are within the two slices of that razor blade. The best man is here. God is over here. We're arguing on, are you on the left side of the razor blade or the right side of the razor blade? And God is on the far side of the room. Okay, we cannot comprehend a holiness of God and the offense to God that our sin presents. See, there is no darkness. He can't abide it. He can't stand with it. He can't have fellowship with it. He can't put his arms around it. He needed to deal with that. So that's what he said. And the personification, Christ, we all know, and John is the light of the world. To be in the light in John's passage here is another way of saying to be in Christ. Paul used that all the time. Are you in Christ or not? John would say it, are you in the light or not? They mean the same thing. Are you in Christ, the pure, the holy one, the light? So John shares at the beginning of this verse, which is interesting, In verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, walk in a way not worthy of Christ, unlike Christ, without Christ, um, we're just a little off. Is that what it says? God says, we lie and we do not live by the truth. See, the false assertion that John's stating here is that people think that they can continue to have fellowship with God and still live in habitual sin. God says it's a lie. It can't be done. See, we might see this in today's world in several ways. Um, we might see people even in church that say they have a relationship with God but they don't really see the necessity of a life that continues to grow in obedience and holiness. They don't see a connection. I know God. I said the words. What about your life? John's saying if you walk in darkness and you claim to have fellowship, you lie. Now, I'm thinking that people in this category may not necessarily think they're lying. They might think that, well, in fourth grade, I made a decision for Christ. In the fourth grade, I said the right thing. I, I believe what you guys believe. God's real. Yep, I believe Jesus. I believe there's a Jesus. I believe he died on a cross. I believe he rose again. Okay, that might be true. And because I believe that, now I can live any way I want, and I'll still have fellowship with God because he promised. This thinking, God says is a lie. So John is telling us that people must take sin seriously and accept God's remedy for a sinful condition. Now this next one is really powerful because it says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Now this isn't a person saying I never sin. This is a person that says there is no sin nature in me. Now, I don't even believe there is a sin nature. We're all born a blank slate. Some people make bad decisions. Some people make good decisions. But I don't have a sin problem. 
No, I, I'm pretty good. Well, David would take them on in Psalm 51. He said, surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So that means that you and I were born with a sin problem without doing a thing. God sees us as having a sin disease that needs to be dealt with. If you don't recognize this, if you say, I don't have a sin problem, there is no hope for you. You don't need a Savior. God's saying it's important to think of sin rightly. If you don't think of it like I have this disease, no matter how good I am, because I have the disease. Whenever God x-rays me, there's the disease. No matter what I'm doing on the outside, I have a sin nature. And a person that's like that is called self-deceived. You're just fooling yourself. The only person you're fooling is yourself because you're certainly not fooling God. In verse 10, John states the third claim. He says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has, is not in us. Now, this claim is a little different than the prior two. Uh, this one probably admits that sin probably does exist, and if I did do it, it'd probably impact my relationship with God, but man, I'm pretty good. Um, I've never really met a person who claimed sinless perfection. Are there any here? Okay, none here. Um, but God says that any sin, the wages of sin, is death. Or another one, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. God cannot abide it. And so you can say, well, I don't do it much. That's not in consolation to God. So even if you deny having a sin nature, or you don't deny having a sin nature, and you say you don't sin, what you're actually doing, and see, if you looked in Scripture, uh, the wisest man that God said ever lived was Solomon, and he recorded two verses, one's in 1 Kings 8 and one's in Ecclesiastes 7, and he said this, when nation sins against you, for there is no one who does not sin, okay? And in Ecclesiastes, he says, indeed, there was no one on earth who was righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. So God, over and over in Scripture, has said, by the way, nobody's sinless, okay? But when we claim that in the face of this, what this verse says and John is saying, we're not just saying, I have a different opinion, you're calling God a liar. Pretty strong words. God, you lie. That's not true. I'm good. Well, you can try that all the way up to the throne, but I don't think it's going to work. God will not be mocked. So the conclusion that John wants us to get out of this intro is he wants to know, wants us to know, and his flock to know that sin breaks our fellowship with God. If we, do, if we harbor sin in our heart, heart, we cannot have fellowship with God. That's what David said. When I harbored sin in my heart, I was miserable. Why? Because you're far from me. You see, anyone who walks in sin 
denies sin or says I don't sin is either a liar, a deceived person, or is calling God a liar, period. See, any such person will not and cannot have a fellowship and relationship with God. It's important for us to know this because how we think about sin and treat sin is instrumental before you take step two. If you want to know that you have a real relationship with God, you need to know why you needed one in the first place. And John was clear. Thinking about sin was important when you think about it rightly because it drives us to need a Savior. Now, let's go to the test because John's assuming that people have already acknowledged this. He's pointed out the falsehoods, and now he's trying to get people to acknowledge that how do I know since Christianity is not a set of moral creeds, it's not a list of do's and don'ts, it is not a list of service. I, I mean, I've always heard about the, the uh, 310 club. I, when I grew up, I always heard about the 310 club. Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, and 10%. I, I belong to the 310 Club. God is not impressed with the 310 Club, let me tell you right now. That's, that's not it. True Christianity is only a personal relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. One thing a personal relationship. Now, John was saying, hey, I'm writing these things to you so you can be sure that you have this, but he also wanted to be, make them be sure that they were not having false hope because there were some, even in his church, like I'm sure there may be some here today that are maybe counting on being in heaven that shouldn't. It's scary. See, Jesus put it this way on the importance of this relationship. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, you've got to believe that the omnipotent and omniscient Son of God is certainly not saying here, I don't know who you are. I don't know anything about you. No, he knows everything about you. He knows everything you've done every motive of your heart, everything you've not done, he knows it all. What he was saying was, I don't have a relationship with you. You don't have a relationship with me. You and I are not close. He's not saying I don't know you. He's just saying you don't have a relationship with me. I mean, that scares some Christians because I, I, I was talking to my dad the other day, and he goes, man, I, there's some people here at, at his uh, senior citizen home that they're all facing death <laughs> within a matter of five to ten years, and they're all talking about, will I be good enough? Will I make it? And my dad tries to tell them, 
wait a minute, it's not being good enough. It's having a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that matters. See, a lot of us in this room may say things like, Lord, Lord, did I not teach Sunday school? Did I not lead a home Bible study? Did I, even, did I not even go out with Sean on evangelism nights? A and didn't I not help at bungee soccer and summer night camp? And maybe didn't I even preach? Jesus is not impressed with those things. He wants those things after he has your heart. He wants to know, do you know me? Do you have a relationship with me? That's what I want. See, so I think God was very gracious here because even Paul said it this way. He doesn't want them to have false hope. And he says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So what test is he talking about? How do you test a relationship? Now, we all love measurable tests, although you probably don't know you do. Now, in school you might not, but I bet every time you get on an airline to fly somewhere, you're really happy that the pilot was tested, right? And before that surgeon put a knife in you, you, you wanted to make sure that he wasn't just the brightest guy in his school that knows every muscle, every ligament, every nerve, every tendon, every everything, but he's never performed one surgery. In fact, he's never been tested. I don't want, that's not the guy I want operating on me, okay? That's not the guy or gal. I, that's not what I want. Measurable objective tests are important, and God was gracious enough because there's no test more important than to determine where will my eternity be spent. That's more important than will I fly to New Orleans safely, even though we'd all like to do that. No, not New Orleans, wherever you'd like to fly. But where I'm going to spend eternity sounds like a much more important thing to know and to test. Well, isn't it wonderful? God, in the second chapter of 1 John, gives us three practical and measurable tests to know whether we know him or not. See, it's really difficult in some things to say, well, how blue is blue? I want the wall blue. Does that mean anything to anybody? It probably means a thousand things to a thousand people. But God says it's possible to know whether you have a relationship with me for certain so you can know. You can, know, you can walk out of here confident that you know God. And more importantly, that when you get to the end of your life, he will say, I know you too in a relationship. So what are those three tests that John is going to tell us about? Well, in second in second chapter of 1 John, there's the moral or obedience test in verses 3 to 6, the love and the social test in verses 7 to 11, and the belief or the doctrinal test in verses 18 to 27. So let's start first with the moral test. John lays out there's two parts to the moral test, 
and let's just read verses three and four first. We know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a little off, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Wow. Now, these words that he's using here, that I love how it's phrased. We know that we have come to know. We know that we've become intimate with Jesus in a relationship. Now, that intimacy that he's talking about here is the same word that the Bible uses for Adam knew Eve, and they bore a son. You can't get much more intimate than that. And that's what he says. You can intimately know God that way, experientially, and you can know it for certain. How? If we keep his commands. Wow. So it says, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Well, he's just saying your walk has to match your talk. Our words must be tested by our actions. Um, if we dis disobey God's commands, our claim to have come to know God are false. Now, I've got to clarify, because some of you are probably fidgeting, when John's talking here about obey his commands, he's not talking about flawless perfection that I just talked about a moment ago. No one is flawlessly perfect except Jesus, right? Okay? So what he's talking about here is not perfect obedience. What he's talking about here is all of what Scripture talks about. It's called the pattern of your life. The pattern of your life should be in a growing, striving caring, desiring obedience. That's what he's talking about. And you want to love his commands. Now, no matter how much we want to, you might say, I want to do what he wants me to do, but I keep messing up. Did you know that God knew that was a reality and he provided for that? What, why does he include 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, which sins? The ones I keep committing not the ones that I confessed when I became a believer. He's talking about the ones that are ongoing. He's, he's faithful to do what? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what does he say in, in the second chapter of John, first verse? I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin, but if is also when you do sin, Please know you have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous, who will plead your case before the Father. See, he's calling us not to perfection here, but to a direction. Okay? The direction of our life needs to be upwards in increasing growth, increasing obedience, increasing love. Now, John also knows and says here that a true child of God will start acting like their father and will want to please their father. And I think it's a great verse. It's also in 1 John in chapter 3, verse 9. It says, No one who was born of God, who is a believer, who has Christ in their life, will continue to habitually sin because God's seed remains in them. 
they cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Friends, if you have truly been born of God and have a relationship with Christ, you just can't keep doing sin in your life. It, it will just be so wrong that you just, God will prevent it. He will give you the right desires, the right power, the transformation that you need to want right, not wrong. See, our sinful heart wants wrong. It always does. But God can give us new hearts that want what he wants. And he's saying, if you've received that new heart from me, you just can't. Go try it. And I've talked to people that are believers. They're kind of like the prodigal son that goes out in the country, and they try to sin. And they are so miserable. God takes all the fun out of sin. He takes all the want to out of sin. And they got to run right back and say, God, you were right, you were right, you were right. I'm yours. And true children come back. True children come back. It's not that we won't get crazy once in a while and do something stupid. But he won't leave you there because you have his seed in you. And it won't let you stay. Now, in verse 5 of chapter 2, John goes on and says, But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. Well, there's two concepts being expanded on here. I'm going to do them briefly. One is, at the beginning it says, anyone who keeps his commands. Most Old Testament people would say, well, that means the Torah. You, you keep the Ten Commandments if you keep his commands. John is saying, if anyone obeys his word, the Logos, this is the full and complete revealed words and commands of Jesus throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, everything he commands. If you're not fulfilling all of it as a desire of your heart, it says you, if you're doing that, love for God will be made complete. Now, what does that mean, love for God? It's really difficult. In fact, one of our elders asked the question once, and I thought it was really profound. How, I, I want to love God more. I want to say I love God, but it's hard to love someone I can't see. Anybody ever feel that? It's hard to love someone I can't see. So how does God say that works? Well, John tells us that after we apply that obedience to the whole word of God, he says that obedience to knowing is, is more than knowing God, which he said in the first part. He said, now how do you know you love God? By obeying him. What? Jesus said, if you love me, Feel warm, gushy thoughts about me. If you love me, cry crocodile tears when you fail. Is that, is that what it says here? It says, if you love me, keep my commands. What? Is it that simple? Yes. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. That's what Jesus said. So if I'm looking at the guy who's sitting next to him and fawning all over him, oh, Jesus, you're wonderful but he goes out and disobeys him, and the other one is Mr. Stoic, but he does exactly what he said. Who's demonstrated he loves Jesus? The one who obeyed. Now, it's interesting. Both Jesus and John are saying that true love for God is not expressed in words 
or by sentimental language or by some emotional experience, but simple obedience. Now, we understand this. I think we do. If you have a child come up to his parent and says, Mommy, Daddy, I love you, and you're so thrilled and your heart's warm that your child loves you, and then you say, that's really good, Johnny. Could you go clean up your room? No way. I'm going to go play. See ya. Now, we understand that that doesn't really con connect. There's something wrong here. If you really love me, you wouldn't want to hurt me. You really would want to do what I said. So if you go out and do your own thing, that's not communicating you love me. Now, we understand that with our children, but somehow we get disconnected when we think about God. We think love for God is something more than just doing what he says. If he says forgive, we forgive. If he says to encourage, we encourage. If it says confess your sins one to another, we confess our sins one to another. There's a whole list of things that we are instructed to do, but somehow we don't take them as seriously that we're not demonstrating love for God by doing them. If that was your parent asking you, go forgive your brother, nope, not doing it. Okay, I don't know what to do with that, but God knows what to do with that with a rebellious child. He knows how to handle a kid that's really his. Now, here's what it says. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him, in Christ, must live we walk or behave as Jesus did. So there's a simple test for us. We cannot claim to be Christians and to say we know Jesus Christ if we don't continue to behave like Jesus. Let me ask a different question. How do you behave and how do I behave? Are you ever accused of being like Jesus? Man, have you been hanging out with Jesus? You're acting a lot like him. We should be. We should be. So, when you walk around, are you trying to obey the Father fully in all you do? Are you being sacrificial in your love? Are you being gentle? Are you being gracious? Are you being kind? Are you being compassionate? Are you speaking the truth? That's what Jesus would do. How about, so when you look at your life and you say, well, the first test is, if we say we know God and don't obey him, we're lying. So did you pass the first test? Because the first test is simple. Is your life reflected by a growing obedience to God? God was very, very clear here. He gave us simple yes-no questions. And the question is, stands in front of us all and stands in front of me. Is that me? Did you pass? How about the love or social test? In verses 7 to 11, he says, Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is a message you have heard, yet I'm writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light 
is already shining. Here we are back to the light and darkness. Anyone who claims to be in the light, in Jesus, but hates a brother is still in the darkness, demonstrates he doesn't have Jesus. Anyone who loves their brother lives in the light, in Jesus, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Now, quickly, I want to go through here because what he's, he's, he's really comparing two things here. One is this old command, new command. It's kind of confusing. I give you an old command, but it's not really a new command. It's not really a new command. It's an old command, but not really old. It's new. And you, what? Okay. The commands are the same. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Jesus said, and he put new emphasis on here when he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. I mean, if you're not loving God and loving your friend, neighbors, you're failing the law. You're failing my commands. So you have to start there. You say, well, I'm, I'm teaching Sunday school. Yeah, but you're not loving your brother. Yeah, but I'm serving on this. I'm giving here. Yeah, but you're not loving me by obeying. You're not, if you'd fail the first two, you fail it all. So Jesus puts new importance on love. So that's why it's new. It has new importance. The second thing is it has new quality. To what extent will this love go? Well, Jesus said, my command is this, love each other pretty good. No. John 15, 12 says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Jesus, did you have to set the bar so high? You came to earth and died for people that hated you. And that's how I'm supposed to love one another? That, in fact, that's what he tells husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for her. What? Sacrificial love? This is the new model, and this is what Jesus calls us to when he says to love. And the new extent of the love is, in the Old Testament, it was largely, and Jesus said this, don't have to love your enemies, but at least love your friends. And, and Jesus says, no, by the parable of the Good Samaritan and his statement here is, love each other as I have loved you and everyone is your neighbor. So I don't care where you find a believer in this planet, you're commanded to love them. Did you know that? I mean, they could be in Afghanistan, they could be in uh, Borneo, uh, they could be in Rodeo. Love them. So the other thing about the true light, Jesus is the light. We can refer to that again. And he says that those that are not loving their brother are not in the light, are not in Jesus. Now, I I'm, I'm really make sure you get this. The Bible does not have light, dark, gray, twilight, a lot of middle ground. Everything is light, or dark. It says anyone who's not loving his brother is hating them. What? I don't hate them. If you're not loving them, you're hating them. That's what Jesus says. And he says anyone who hates his brother and does not love him and does not have a love for them. See, and I think a lot of us are, are making it too fuzzy. Um, I have a confession. 
I, I have not mastered this love for one another, but I've mastered the talk. Love you, brother. Don't ask me anything. No, that's not how it should be. What he said was, I, I, what happened to me was I was in Costco. <laughs> it's a dangerous place to shop. Spend more than you want to spend, get more than you want to get, and ha throw half of it away. Okay, that's, that's Costco. They've got a good model going. And I ran into a brother, a form, a one that used to come to the Valley Bible Church. He went into some tough times, made some bad choices, had some real strong grief in his life, and is no longer attending here. I had a conversation with him right in front of the frozen food aisle there. And I said, as he was parting, I said, hey, I want you to know I still love you, brother. And he snapped back. I, I'd never seen anything so quick. And he said, uh, hey, anybody can say they love me. But when's the last time you called me? When's the last time you checked in on me to see if I'm still in the faith? When's the last time you invited me out to coffee? Have you ever done it? I wasn't expecting such a rebuke in the frozen food aisle. <laughs> but there was truth in what he said. I hadn't done those things. So how would he know I loved him? In fact, our pastor's uh, humorous anecdote for that fits. He says, anybody uh, telling me you love me without demonstrating it to me, and so that I know it, is like winking at your girlfriend in the dark. does no one any good. She doesn't get appreciated, you get no points. Okay, so what happens here is, how, are my, how am I doing and how are you doing it tangibly showing love? Now, if you're stumped on where to go here, just be a friend. If you're stumped, go to 1 Corinthians 13, and it says, gee, Love is patient. Are you patient with people? That demonstrates love. Are you kind to them? Are you humble? Are you not self-seeking? You look for their interests first. You're not easily angered. You're, you're not a touchy person. They can say what they want around you, and you love them. That's how you can love them. How about this? Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Are you available? Or do you want to be around when they're weeping? Now, call me when you're rejoicing, uh, but the weeping part, someone else can handle. I know a lot of people that don't want to go to anybody who's in grief because they don't know what to say. Anybody there? They don't know what to do. Do you know often everybody recommends what the best thing to do is say nothing. Be present. So how do you show love? Are we demonstrating love? And do these things typify how we love one another? Do we want to show love to one another? Do you even want to love us? God produces love in our hearts for others when we know him. If you don't know him, that love won't be there. And they said that's a test. So the question is, how do we do on that test? Do you love the brothers and sisters in Christ? The last test is actually the easiest one for Valley Bible. It's in verses 21 to 23 because it's doctrinal. 
And one of the things that I can say, no matter how else we've been good or bad, I think we're pretty solid on doctrine. And I pray that God will keep us solid on doctrine. But it says here in verse 21, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Well, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So this is test is very simple. Do you have the right Jesus? You see, on the first part of the reading this, it says, whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Well, the Christ is another word, the Greek word for Messiah. So if, if, you, don't if you believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that's all you've got to know. That's not what he's saying. Because the rest of that verse says such a person is also denying the Father and the Son. What does that mean? Well, he's more than the Old Testament promised Messiah. John is saying that the Jesus of true Christianity is the preexistent Son of God, always God, at a point in time in history became man, fully man, man enough to be killed on a cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven, reigns on high, and will soon come again. This is the Jesus of Christianity. This is the Jesus of Christianity. And he's saying, if you don't have this Jesus, you don't have God the Father, and you have no assurance of eternal life. Now, we might say in here, well, shoot, that's what we believe for all the time. Well, a lot of people and a lot of these Gnostic uh, people came believing that, well, Jesus was a created being. In fact, there are cults today that are exposed by this simple test. If you just ask them, who is Jesus to you? You know, to some, he's the half-brother of Lucifer, right? Uh, to some, he's just um, an infused spirit man who was never God but became kind of uh, God-like when God gave him his spirit after he was born, so he was created. Um, there are some that says he was a created spirit being. He was never preexistent. I love your song because that last song that they sang said he was the preexistent son of God. This is God then, now, and always. This is Jesus. So what we want to say is who you believe Jesus is is fundamental to whether you have eternal life. A lot of people, I know, in fact, a friend of mine is a missionary in a Muslim country, and he can't call himself a missionary. He can't call himself um, a Christian because that would incite anger and hostility. But he, has, he is not opposed if he calls him a Jesus follower. Why? Because Muslims hold Jesus as a prophet. And it's okay to follow your prophet, we follow, all, we, we, we follow Muhammad, you follow Jesus, okay. But you're not claiming that Jesus is the pre-incarnate Son of God, King Eternal, died and rose again, coming again, the only one where salvation comes from. When you say you're a Christian, that's what you're saying. So now, what did you do on that test? Have you settled for a lesser Jesus? 
or did you pass? So how did you do on all these tests? So if you say you know and love God today, does your life reflect a steady and growing obedience? Because God says your love for him is no greater than your obedience. That's hurtful sometimes to me because he says you don't love me any more than you're willing to obey me. Okay. Challenge heard. Because that's how I demonstrate my love to him. If your life is not marked by a pattern of growing obedience and Christ-likeness, but you say you know him, God says you're a liar. Not Tim. God says. So if you're here and you don't see this in your life, God says you don't really know him. If you say you're walking in the light or in Christ and you don't love your brothers and you don't desire to love your brothers, God says you're walking in darkness. And we know that walking in darkness is walking without Christ and the truth. And if you say you know the Father and you believe that Jesus is the uncreated eternal Son, then you have eternal life. But if you don't claim this Jesus that became a man, crucified, rose again, you don't have eternal life. Now, I, I really appreciate that God loved us enough to give us the answers to the test before we have to take it, that he gave us a test because no one wants to show up after saying, Lord, Lord, did I do not all these things in your name and have him say, I never had a relationship with you. He's saying no one ever has to hear that if you take this test and allow him to let you pass because it takes the spirit of the living God in you to pass this test. Now, it's in my heart right now that everyone that hears my voice will pass these tests and have God's assurance that you really do know him and that you can claim eternal life as yours. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but you now realize that you do have a sin problem, God has made it clear that you need a great Savior. You can have that great Savior this morning before you leave. God can transform your life today. God can give you a brand new life today. A life that actually wants to obey God. A life that wants to love one another. And he will also promise you eternal life. If there's anyone here who wants to surrender your life to Christ today and to know for sure that you know for sure that I'm going to heaven and pass this test, would you please raise your hand for a moment and put it down? We're not going to make you stand and come up. Just slip your hand up and put it down. Thank you. Thank you. God saw that hand. And God never turns anyone away who seeks him. 
for you that are here and you say you're a Christian, did you pass these tests? See, God wants you to have real hope and not be living in false hope. Are you a person who seems to know all the right things, have said all the right things, but your life just has not changed? And you can't honestly say you're passing the test. Please don't go home until you're sure you really know him and have taken Jesus as your Savior and Lord. If this is you today, you're in the church, you've been in the church, but you can't pass the test and you want to know him, you want to pass, would you slip your hand up and put it down? I see that. Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can divide even our motives from our actions. It exposes us bare before you. And I thank you, Father, that your word today has shown us that sin separates us from you. You hate it. You can't abide it. But you've sent a loving remedy through your son who died on a cross so that we might have eternal life. Father, would everyone who's raised their hands and even those who have not, would you speak to their heart and show them those that need you, show them Jesus. And those that have you, show them how they can continue to grow in their love and obedience and love for one another so that this place has the wild, outlandish reputation of being a place of people who obey God, love to obey God, and love one another. May this place be that place. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your spirit that gives us life. In Jesus' name, amen. If anybody raised their hand and want to talk to someone, we'll have some of the men up front here that can talk with you. Otherwise, God bless you and have a great day.